Welcome to the Rapid Response RN Podcast, helping you keep your finger on the pulse of your patient's condition with real-life stories from the front lines of nursing. This podcast can help you sharpen your assessment skills, improve your ability to recognize the signs and symptoms of your patient's decline, be inspired to speak up and advocate, and know how to jump into action to promote the best outcome for your patients. Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. On today's episode, we're talking about a case that unfolded unexpectedly and rather quickly. Our patient came in with your classic pancreatitis symptoms, but ended up needing a massive blood transfusion to save his life. And joining me today to discuss the patient's case are two amazing nurses, Kathleen and Marissa. Welcome to the show, ladies. Thank you, thank you. Glad to be here. So before we dive into the story, I'd like to take a minute to introduce you guys to my listeners. So let's start with you, Kathleen, since you're new to the show. Tell everyone how long you've been a nurse, what type of floor you work on. Well, um, I'm Kathleen. I've been a nurse for about exactly two years now, actually. I've worked on a med surge renal floor, so we focus on patients mostly on dialysis, end-stage renal, I mean, kidney-related mostly. So we see a lot of things on this floor. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, so that's pretty much me in a summary. And then what do you like about that role as a nurse? So, um, one again, that we get to see so many things. Um, so on that day that we discussed that patient, we actually, this was my first day charging and let's just say it was an experience (laughs) to say the least, but it was fun. It was fun. It was nice taking that position for that day. Um, I got to learn exactly what a charge nurse does and what you tap into when you enter that role. So it was quite interesting to experience it for that one day. (laughs) Yeah, and to have such a crazy day on your floor as your first day ever, you you totally rocked it, Kathleen. Like, you should be really proud of yourself. I I actually texted your bosses, and I was like, y'all, Kathleen did such a good job today. You should have seen her in action. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. So now that you have such a veteran charge nurse, what (laughs) what do you enjoy about the charge nurse role? Yes, after one such great day... Um, I mean, I thought one day, let's see. So, I mean, as I said, it was quite a day. We had about two falls, one including that patient. We had um, the rapid with this guy. We had someone who vanished for our floor for who knows how long. Oh, so, my goodness. It, you, I mean, I guess the responsibility of it is one thing, but being able to see, like, all the different patients and what they're going through mm-hmm. and really making sure that their plan of care kind of goes according mm-hmm. to what they want, mm-hmm. I think it's quite... It's quite a fun thing, at least for me, it was to that yeah. one. Yeah. I know for me, you know, I progressed pretty quickly as in my orientation and mm-hmm. was a preceptor. But once I came charge nurse, it was like, bam. Yes. I just escalated really rapidly with the amount of knowledge I had to have and leadership. Because now you don't only know your team of patients. You have to know everybody's Everyone, patients. Yes. So you're learning about all the complications and the risk, what could go wrong, like all the things really fast. Mm-hmm. It definitely like accelerates you as a nurse. So yes. I'm glad you got to experience that and that we got to see you absolutely rocking it. Thank you. Uh, and Marissa, welcome back to the podcast. I interviewed Marissa a few months back about her patient that developed an air embolism to the brain after pulling out her own central line. So if you haven't listened to that episode, it's a really good one. I'd go check it out. Marissa is an incredible rapid response nurse. And since we went to this emergency together, I wanted to bring her back to the show to share how everything unfolded and our thought process as to why we're so concerned about this patient. But for those of you that haven't already heard of Marissa, Marissa, if you'll just take a real quick minute to introduce yourself, 
share with us how long you've been a nurse, what your background is, and what you love about the rapid response role. Sure. As Sarah said, my name is Marissa. I've been a nurse for 10 years this year, which is crazy to me. But I started my career in med surge, taking care of hemoc patients, transitioned to medical ICU, worked there for about five, six years, then transitioned to our cardiac ICU for a couple of years, and then was approached by our very own Sarah for the startup of our formal rapid response team. Mm -hmm. Uh, I got to take care of patients on CVBH with balloon pumps, impellas, open heart, VA and VV ECMO, just to name a couple of things. But of all the things I've done as a bedside nurse, rapid response has been my jam. When I worked ICU prior to our rapid response team, the ICU's responsibility was to respond to all of the medical emergencies in the hospital, and the staff would rotate around who would attend. So after about a year in the unit, I started charging, and eventually the role of the charge nurse became responding to all the in-house emergencies solely. So I had been doing the job of a rapid response nurse for a while, but being a real rapid response nurse where my only responsibilities is that has been quite literally the best nursing job ever. I get to take care of sick people, teach other people how to take care of sick people, and it's just awesome what I'm doing now. And I am so honored to get to work alongside you, Marissa. So now that you guys know who is behind the mic, let's dive into the story. Um, to start, to maintain our patient's privacy, we're going to refer to him as Mr. James, uh, though that was not his name. But Kathleen, I'm going to have you start us out. So you weren't the primary nurse for Mr. James, but as the charge nurse, mm -hmm. what did you know about him before you had to respond to this emergency? Okay, so um, again, the morning of, I took a quick glimpse at everyone. So for him, what I knew of, he came in pretty much symptoms of pancreatitis. Um, ended up having um, a biopsy done because he had pancreatic cancer. So this was pretty much all I knew. Um, they had some complaints in the morning, so I went in the morning. So I got to see him before everything happened. So I chatted up with him. Um, he was alert, oriented. He was the sweetest, nicest guy. So you, you knew the met. baseline already? Yes. Okay. So I already knew the baseline. Um, but mostly pancreatitis. Um, biopsy was done i think they were waiting to confirm that it was pancreatic cancer i believe um and for general surgery so this was pretty much all i knew yeah. to me he was as stable as stable could be at the time yeah at the time <laughs> things change right <laughs> well when the yes. is nursing exactly <laughs> it's stable till it's not yes yeah so i read the chart afterwards trying to figure like what happened with this guy yes he had pancreatitis he mm -hmm. presented with like jaundice and all those typical abdominal pain symptoms um, they did do the CAT scan, which showed a, a mass, which okay. they were assuming was cancer. They had set out the biopsy, no results yet. And he went for an ERCP, I think the day prior, to mm -hmm. try to like clear things out, to help him get better flow, clear out the jaundice, take care of the pain, all those things. So he was actually supposed to be like getting better, like yes. moving towards discharge. Yes. But then things Something. changed. <laughs> okay. So, um... How did you end up coming back to the room? Like, how were you notified of this emergency? Okay. So, maybe not funny story, but funny story. I was on break. Of course. I was on break. <laughs> um, I'm on break, and my break has ended, and I'm walking to clock back in, and one of the tech tells me, hey, so I don't know if they told you, but the patient in this room fell, and by the way, his blood pressure was 60 over something. And I'm like, wait, what? Wait, what? <laughs> why has you should no leave one... with that. Exactly. <laughs> like, let's just start there. Like, why has no one at least come in to let me know? But anyway, I clock back in right away, drop whatever was in my hands. I go into the room, and this man is not even talking anymore. He's just grunting in pain. And I'm like, what happened? Like, what? 
second of all, this is the second fall for the day. <laughs> and my first day charging, so this is just like, come on now, not today. <laughs> so I walk in, and the doctor's in the room, the nurse is in the room, and I'm just like, what happened? So he had a fall. He had received, I believe, the lauded. And a tech walked by the room because I don't know what she was doing. I was like, oh, I found him on all fours. So they called to get some help to get him back in bed. And since then, it's just been downhill from there. Um, was not able to talk because he was in so much pain. Could not get up by himself because he was in so much pain. So they had to pick him up, get him back in bed. Um, blood pressure was in the 60s. So the doctor ordered a one-time bolus at the time. So it was, yeah, belly started. So, okay, bolus. Sarah trained me well enough. So I'm like, okay, let's get the pressure back going because this pump is not going to do it. Um, yes, <laughs> yes. So we get the pressure back. I get it started. And we're like, so what are you going to do? So we run another set of vitals and he's like still in the 80s. So the doctor's like, well, just call the rapid. Let's try to get him stable. We're trying to figure out. So we call the rapid. We cycle vitals still in the 80s, but he's not running a temp, not tachycardic, blood pressure still low, can't maintain, and we can't do anything for his pain because his blood pressure is so low. Ah, that's the worst. So, Catalina, at this point, you know, his blood pressure's low. How is he looking as far as, like, skin color, temperature, like, mental status? Is he responding to you appropriately? So, um, mental status... I mean, it was it was a slight change. I mean, yes, he was in pain, but he was still able to answer all the questions correctly. I don't think he was diaphoretic. Um, blood pressure was low. Heart rate was low. Um, he, I mean, skin-wise, he was the same to me as I saw him in the morning. So, jaundice. jaundice. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. there wasn't a big, major change. The only thing that was screaming to me was just his pain. Because to me, he just got delighted. Right. Something should have worked Good. on him yeah. but no like he was almost like more in pain by the second right okay so you respond this guy's on all fours his blood pressure's low you said you got him back in bed with the team mm -hmm. you got a liter of fluid started on a pressure bag mm -hmm. <laughs> um what kind of, as a charge nurse what mm -hmm. kind of things do you have to do as far as like delegation and like getting the whole team working together to yes help this patient so well, we, okay, so once we know that we're calling a rapid, so we have, like, the phone system where we can just directly call the main, I guess, what do you call it? The, the information, yeah. the operator into the hospital to call the rapid. But then you got to get someone from the floor to get the crash card, get supplies. So we told someone else that was outside of the room, hey, we need the crash card, we're calling the rapid. And I'm like, once you call the rapid, everyone's freaking out, I'm like, it's don't forget yet it's not that bad so let's keep walking let's not run so they grab the crash cart um we get him set up on a monitor um so there are basic things that we do get um blood glucose put him in a monitor so we can see like cardiac wise how he's doing so um you kind of get to delegate these things while still making sure that the uh the patient's nurse is still okay i'm like this is what's gonna happen you make sure you're okay you're gonna give report you're gonna tell them what happens and then you kind of delegate to other people what to do next awesome you did a great job like coming alongside her like being her support so mm -hmm. she could be able to even answer questions to yes. us you, you really rocked it um especially with like knowing what to do for that blood pressure like mm -hmm. everyone wants to put on the pump you're trained like put it on the pump put it on the pump yeah 
But <laughs> but if you put a liter of fluids on a pup at 999, how long will it take to get into the patient? An hour. An hour. And we do not have an hour. We no. have a blood pressure of no. 80 systolic. Yes. <laughs> we need to get into the hospital. So strong right there. <laughs> All right. So now, Marissa, you actually got there before me. How was the patient, like, when you arrived? What information did you get? You know, what, what are you thinking as soon as you walk in the room? Sure. So when I get to the room for any rapid response, I do kind of a quick visual check of the room. I look at the staff. I look at the patient. I look at the resources we have. And I kind of do a quick room assessment in my head, almost like a scene safety check if you're a paramedic. Uh, the big things I look for is their suction set up. Is the patient sitting or lying in the bed? Is there an IV pump? And as I'm looking around, I look at the IV pool and there's fluids on a pressure bag. Yes. Heck yeah, I said in my head. And I kept looking at the patient and dang, he was yeller. And I mean, not quite banana yellow, but he was very jaundiced and clearly suffering from some kind of liver dysfunction or obstructive process. So I have a script I read, kind of every single rapid I go to. Hey guys, what's going on with your patient today? There was a lot of things that were said, but all I really heard was hypotension. Not that the details aren't important, but initially I just want to know why it's called. So hypotension, good. Fluids are up, we should be okay. Next thing I looked at was the heart rate. Usually if you got a patient with hypotension, they're generally tachycardic because they're compensating for the low blood pressure. Not this guy. His heart rate was 58. I'm looking at the defibrillator. I'm like, what? That's weird. Scratching my head. By then, the residents are there, and they're asking the primary nurse questions. And we come to find out the patient had been found on the floor, helped back to bed, persistently hypotensive. So fluids are running. At this point, the blood pressure started to trend up. Systolic was 100, up from 80s before. Heart rate's still in the low 60s. Sat 98%. Respirate's about 20 Pain scale, I'm, I'm going to have to guess by the moaning and kind of writhing in the bed, the patient was about a 10 out of 10 pain. So a couple things kind of go through my head with jaundice patients. Is this a chronic liver dysfunction? How distended is their abdomen? Is their abdomen obstructing their diaphragm and affecting their breathing pattern and ability? Have they had a paracentesis? If I give them fluid, where is it going to go? How fast can I get albumin up here from pharmacy, realistically? <laughs> Are, is the patient talking to me? Is what they're saying making sense or is their ammonia so high that they're altered? There's so many things that go through your head as a rapid response nurse, but the end goal is figuring out the puzzle so you can get the patient stable and get them to where they need to go. There was a lot going on here, not just the hypotension. Yeah, for sure. And that's like exactly what it is. Like, like, yes, I walk in the room and I look like I'm just putting the patient on the monitor, but at the same time, we're scanning the room, asking all these questions in our head. Why does his belly look like this? Why is his skin like this? Like trying to figure out the details as the nurse is giving you the story. Um, so it's a lot going on all at once, trying to, like you said, like Sherlock Holmes, trying to figure out what is the mystery here? What's happening with the patient? That's right. So before we move on to talk about what happened from here, I wanted to pause for a minute and actually talk about pancreatitis itself, just so we can understand the... You know, pathophysiology behind why he's acting like this and why he looks like this. Um, so, Kelly and Marissa, you guys have both taken care of your share of pancreatitis patients, I'm sure. Kelly, and I'll start with you. Can mm -hmm. you talk about the usual course for a pancreatitis patient on the med search floor? I mean, honestly, it's not super complicated. Usually. usually. <laughs> Keyword, usually. So, technically, it's probably fluid if they're not able to retain any food, really, and then antibiotics. Um, those are the two main things that we usually do. Sometimes we do a Q6 blood sugar check, again, just to make sure okay. insulin-wise that they're okay. Um, and then low-fat diet. So yes. those are the main thing that we usually do, really, and keep it simple. Um, antibiotic, fluid, 
and, and for fat. most patients, yeah. that's and really all you need. Yeah. Get them hydrated again, control their pain, mm-hmm. give them food that's not going to exacerbate things, but definitely exactly. give them food. Yes. Um, and then they kind of get better. Exactly. And go home. Exactly. Right. But, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> here. And Marissa, from the ICU perspective, at what point does a pancreatitis patient need to go to ICU and like why? Like what can the ICU provide that they can't do on a med search floor? So it's kind of like Kathleen said, you start with fluid resuscitation. So the first 24 to 48 hours, they need lots of fluid. If for some reason there's a necrotizing pancreatitis going on, we give those antibiotics, but sometimes the fluid is not enough and the patient becomes hemodynamically unstable. Their blood pressure will drop, they become tachycardic, and they start almost looking like a septic patient. So your support and treatment for those patients at that time is supportive care. Fluids continued, vasopressors if you need them, frequent lab checks, pain control because they're in a lot of pain. Um, If you give so much fluid that they need to be intubated, you support their airway and their lungs that way, and I mean, like I said, the antibiotics, sometimes they have to go on CRRT for renal replacement therapy if their kidneys stop working, but are not just kind of support the patient as they go through the process. Right. Sometimes they need surgery. Once they get stable enough, if they have to go to the operating room, they have the opportunity for a Whipple, things like that. Right. But there's no like pancreatitis pill. Sure like, not. The pancreatitis mm-hmm. IV drip that cures it. It's... That would be great. <laughs> just supporting <laughs> but the But no, right. unfortunately not. And then sometimes they have to have an ERCP. Can you talk a little bit about what is an ERCP? How is that even helpful? Sure. In population? So ERCP can be diagnostic and treatment related. So it stands for endoscopic retrograde Coleangiocreatography. Yep, that's it. Yeah, the pancreatography. Okay, so kind of in the name kind of tells us what they're doing here. So endoscopic, they use an endoscope, which is a camera that's used to look in places we can't see, like the lungs, esophagus, stomach, the colon. So they use one of those. Coli, like the gallbladder, and geography is collecting images using contrast, and then pancreat is pancreatitis. So coleangiopancreatography. Okay, we're looking really fancy, expensive cameras. The gallbladder, <laughs> yeah, a really expensive camera to look at your gallbladder, your pancreas, and do some diagnostic work. So the docs use that endoscope to go down into the duodenum, which is where the pancreatic duct is located, and they feed an instrument in through the duct in order to biopsy tissue. Which in this Mr. James case, mm-hmm. he had a mass, so they were biopsying the mass, and then. They can remove stones if there's an obstruction in the bile duct or place stents to improve flow of the bile. And then they're using x-ray and imaging with contrast dye to visualize what they need to see, remove, do. Okay, so it sounds like an ERCP is basically like a fancy rotor rooter where they go in with a scope like you would for a plumbing system, look around. If there's blockages, you take care of them. Stent things that need to be opened up just to make sure there's good flow. Okay, got it. As a nurse, though, what complications would I be looking for? Like, what are the risks of doing this procedure? Yes, so obviously risks, you're having a procedure done. So sometimes they use sedation. So you can have some sedation-related complications. You don't wake up well. You require additional airway assistance, things of that nature. You're also receiving contrast dye, and some patients have an adverse reaction to contrast. You've got that on the board. A couple of procedural complications, too, include cholecystitis, infection, bleeding, perforation because there's a camera in a place that doesn't belong, pseudoaneurysms, bile collections outside the system, okay? 
Uh, benefits, obviously, you're clearing an obstruction and getting back to normal life for the patient. You're biopsying tumors for specific treatment for different cancers, if that's what's diagnosed. But the benefit is it's not open abdominal surgery. Right. They don't have to open the patient up to get in there and do a biopsy or clear a stone. They can use a camera, and it's about an hour-long procedure that doesn't necessarily need intubation or any other big surgical interventions initially. Okay, so this guy, he got his ERCP. He's supposed to be getting better and going home. But as Kathleen described, he's not getting better. His pain's actually getting worse, as she said, by the minute. He had this, like, kind of sinkable episode situation where he was found on all fours. So Kathleen did the right thing. She gave a liter of fluids on her pressure bag, got his blood pressure up to 100 systolic. Um, the ICU docs just wanted to admit him to the progressive care unit. Um, they ordered some fluids, some blood work, a KUB, and then... They went to leave the patient because his blood pressure seemed to be improving with the fluids initially. But Marissa, you chased after them on the hallway to kind of clarify the, like the plan of care. How did that conversation go? Yeah, so we gave him the first liter. We went to recheck the blood pressure and it had dropped down to the 80s again. Um, my thought was, man, if we're giving a liter of fluid and his pressure is not staying up, we probably need some more fluid. So they've already left. They haven't ordered anything else. I kind of turn around the corner and walk speedily down the hallway to make sure I don't miss him. And I said, hey, can we give a second a liter of fluid? It looks like his pressure is not maintaining with the first we gave. Yeah, you can give a second. I took it a step further. I'm like, if our pressure is low again after the second liter, do you want me to give a third liter or just start a vasopressor? And the doctor kind of looked at me funny and he's like, you can give a third liter and if you got to start a presser, you can start some Levofed. I'm like, okay, great. Hopefully we don't have to go there. But I like to cover all my bases. Right, go ahead and get that, that way. I don't, Levo before I don't you have need to it. call again. <laughs> I can just go ahead and get it done, and then we're not pulled away from the patient. We can just keep moving forward. Got I can it. I can call and we can figure out the rest of it after. Perfect. So Marissa comes back in the room. Blood pressure is still eight to fifties. Um, we started the second liter of fluids. The primary nurse is calling report to the progressive care unit. But in the interim, while that's happening, we kind of all started talking about the patient, trying to figure out like this case a little bit deeper. Mm -hmm. So, Kelly, back to you. Remember, mm -hmm. everyone was initially just saying, oh, he's just hypovolemic, needs more IV fluids. Um, he got pain his, meds. Yeah, yeah, he got some pain meds. Yeah, yeah okay, he's going to be okay. Um, but he's, like, really moaning in pain. Yes. So, for someone who's hypovolemic mm -hmm. and in pain, like, mm -hmm. what would you expect their heart rate to usually be? Over 100. Right. So, but sometimes there's like other factors that might contribute to them not being tachycardic, mm -hmm. like what? Beta blockers. Right. Um, and so we're like, okay, oh, he mm -hmm. must be on beta blockers. Yeah. And the but, whole time we're asking, like, did he get any cardiac meds, any blood pressure meds? And we look through the MAR, nope, everything nothing. was clean, no medication. But to say though, like the whole time um, that we're in the rapid, I'm asking the, the main nurse, I'm like, when did he get his biopsy? When did he get his biopsy? Oh, like, it's probably like yesterday or a couple of days ago. Because I could remember, it happened to me once where I had a patient who had, a, I can't remember it was pancreatic, but he had a biopsy done. And the same thing happened. So I'm thinking bleed, but mm. I can't say bleed because I don't have a legitimate reason to say there's bleed. So I'm yes, thinking it. Right? <laughs> yeah, so I'm thinking it. When is it? When was it? When was it? And I'm like... Is it a bleed? Because the last time I saw this, the man ended up at another hospital to receive uh, an extensive surgery. But I couldn't explain this one. <laughs> but I'm thinking it, but I can't say it. Right. And that's where the whole team comes in, right? Yes. So we're all sitting around. 
you know, she's calling report. We're kind of packing the patient up, talking through, okay, so we've given almost two liters now. And mm-hmm. his blood pressure isn't amazing. No. And he's not really tachycardic, which I would expect for someone who's in pain. He's obviously in pain. And for someone who's hypovolemic. So then we're like, ask some more questions. So then we're like, well, what, how's, his, how's his belly? Is it always like this? It seems a little distended. How long has it been that way? And then this was the clincher for me. So I went to start a second IV, just thinking like, okay, it's nice to have a second IV in case he gets sicker. And when I went to draw his blood, it was like watered down. Hmm. Like it, it looked like hmm. it was diluted with something else, but it wasn't. I confirmed like there's no IV fluids going into this arm at all. I had already clamped the other IV fluids, but just in case I wasted the first five mLs, drew the second 10 mLs, and it's again, like very watered down looking. So between the unexpected bradycardia mm-hmm. and the abdominal extension and tenderness and this watery looking blood, we're all like, no, this guy needs to go to the ICU. Yeah. I know we already have a progressive care unit bed. The nurse has already called report and the blood pressure actually is okay-ish right now. I think we had like a 90 over 50. We're like, no, our gut says something's, something's wrong. We don't like this picture. <laughs> He's not getting better as much as we want him to get better. Let's just go ICU. So Marissa had kind of already talked to the docs before. So I was like, you want to call him back again? (laughs) So Marissa called him back. What did you say in that phone call? So I called the intensivist and I'm like, hey, listen, I know we said PCU for this patient, but I think we're missing something. I was like, he's got this abdominal pain. There's abdominal distension and tenderness. His blood pressure is really not responding to the fluid like we expected. And he's still got this normal bradycardia thing going on. I was like, "I, I really feel like we should go to the ICU. He's like, all right, bring him up. All right, so Marissa's in the hallway calling the doc. The low pressure cycles again. And now it's 69 over 42. And I was like, yeah. oh, shoot. Marissa, this is how it's in the 60s. Get the, get the Levo. So Marissa's in the hallway, like, busting the crash cart out, mixing up the Levofed or norepinephrine. Um, I'm in the room, like, pack it up. Like, we got to book it to the ICU fast, right? So then we tell the nurse, hey, I know you already called report, but if you'll call report again <laughs> to the ICU nurse. And so me and Kathleen are packing as fast as we can. Mercy gets the Levo mixed up. Um, and we're like starting the hallway. We're starting to Levo basically as we're rolling. So Marissa's at the head of the bed, rapidly titrating in the norepinephrine, also making sure the IV fluids are going in as fast as possible. Um, in the elevator, like en route, Mr. James' daughter says, he looks like he's in pain. Can, can you give him something for the pain? And that just brings my heart so much because of course I want to give something. I said, oh, I want to give him something so badly, but his blood pressure is currently 62 over 40 and we have to get his blood pressure up first. And, and then I definitely want to get him something for pain. Noted. Let me go up on this leave of fed over here. <laughs> so I like, okay, I, I call on the blood pressure, look at Marissa and I see her like, changing the dose on the pump. Yeah. So we definitely had to get that blood pressure improved to make sure he's perfusing all of his organs. So we get to the ICU and I'm telling you, he's looking sicker by the second. Like I feel like his belly's getting bigger. He was declining very quickly. So um, unfortunately, at this point I had to leave because it was time to pick up my daughter from daycare. But we got a bunch of people in the room as much as we could, like residents and attending and all the people because we knew who was declining fast. And I left to go pick up my daughter. And then Marissa got a call to another rapid response. I did. I did. So she had like, so Marissa, just tell us, like, how did the rest of your shift go with your rapid and then following up with Mr. James? Sure. So before we left bedside, I mean, his ab- the patient's abdomen looked more and more distended. So I shout out to the room of providers and residents, hey, can somebody do a fast exam? Crickets. I'm like, okay. 
<clears throat> There's usually an ER resident running around up in the ICU somewhere. I bet they would do a fast exam they for me. They love fast exams. They love fast exams. <laughs> they do them downstairs in the ER pretty frequently. They would know what I'm talking about. So I, I found the ER resident. I said, hey, listen, patient in that room is decompensating. I feel like they'd benefit from a fast exam. He's like, well, uh, okay. So goes in there, does the fast exam. Um, I get called to another rapid. I go and I take care of the other patient on the other floor. That patient ends up having to go to the cardiac ICU. I get that patient moved. And as I am dropping that patient off, the charge nurse for the cardiac ICU is wheeling down to ICU the rapid infuser, which we use for our massive transfusion protocol patients. Mm. And I stopped her and I said, where are you going with that? And she said, I see you. I was like, I'm coming with you. <laughs> I know where you're going, unfortunately. James. <laughs> so we, we went back downstairs and they had already started on the blood resuscitation. His hemoglobin had come back. The previous draw had been 11.9 that morning. The repeat draw we did our rapid response was 5.9. So that's why it looks so watery. There that, just was half the blood, <laughs> blood cells in there that, that needed to be. That should have been. So they had rapidly started transfusing the patient. He had gotten an arterial line, a central line. He had not been intubated yet. He was awake. He had been given some sedation to kind of keep him comfortable. He'd gotten some ketamine. And then the goal was to infuse one round of MTP, massive transfusion protocol, and get him down to CT. Because the FAST exam was positive. We knew that the patient was bleeding. Now we just need to figure out where. Mm -hmm. So packed up the patient after the first round of MTP. I have the second round I bring down with the rapid infuser to the CT scan with the primary nurse, a nurse practitioner, our respiratory therapist, and thankfully the primary nurse had an orientee with her. So we had an extra set of yes, hands. one more body. Thank goodness. So we get down to CT. The CT is completed, um, and they discovered a pseudoaneurysm in the gastric duodenal artery. So we had a, a clear source. The patient was able to go to um, interventional radiology later in that evening after my shift, after receiving a second round of MTP, the patient was stabilized, got extubated the next day because he ended up getting electively intubated just for airway protection prior to going to CT. And then was extubated the next day. And then... Sarah, I think you were back on Friday, right? Yeah. So no, this all oh, happened on Friday. 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 And then the following Monday, I got to work. I was like, I gotta go see how he's doing because this guy was so close to death's door. So I found out his room. I walked in the room. I was like, there's no way this is the same guy. He's mm -hmm. not jaundice anymore. He's like getting up to walk in the hallway with physical therapy, like talking, alert oriented, looking perky, great vital signs. I was like, this is, this is crazy how wow. fast he recovered. Yeah. So it was really cool to see like, he got better really quickly because it was all hands on deck. We responded so quickly. Um, so just to review, it started as pancreatitis. Mm -hmm. This was a little more than pancreatitis, but this is a complication of pancreatitis and or the ERCP. Like they can get little pseudoaneurysms. They can bleed. Like that does happen. It's not expected, but when it does, we have to respond very quickly. So you said he got two coolers of MTP. How many blood products did that actually equal out to? So it was eight PRBCs. Eight platelets and eight plasma. So 24. 24. <laughs> 24 bags of blood. Blood products, yes. Okay. Correct. So that's a lot. That means his belly lost a lot of volume. I had to almost replace all of it. Okay. So yeah, this guy made a full recovery. I 
I'm very proud of the teamwork that day from Kathleen being the initial responder, knowing what to do, getting fluid started so he didn't lose flow to his other organs. Like that was so, so important initially. Getting the team all together, us advocating to go to ICU so you can get massive transfusion protocol and vasopressors and all the things that are needed there. Working together as a team to get to CAT scan, to get to the um, IR suite, to get them embolized. It was from the whole team's perspective, this was a huge win because he will go home and probably make a full recovery. It was really awesome. Yeah. Um, so Kathleen and Marissa, strong work, first mm-hmm. of all. Thank and you. if you were to share this story, say with like a new grad or someone you're precepting, what would be the biggest takeaways for you? Like what lessons did you learn? What would you want to pass on to you know, the next generation of nurses after this case? I'll start with you, Kathleen. Well, to me, it's, it's the basic of nursing. Always start your shift with your assessment. Because that will let you know when something is changing. Right. I think having not gone into that room maybe that morning, just if, well, not that it was my vision, but if I didn't get to speak with him in the morning, I wouldn't know what was so different about him right. when things started shifting left. Um, so do your assessment. Something does not look right. If you're nurse, you get your charge nurse. You get someone who has my experience. Don't be afraid to ask for help when you're not sure. Rather be safe than sorry. Absolutely. Um, so assessment, get some help, and trust your intuition because, again, I was screaming bleed in my head, but I wasn't speaking out now. It's not someone who's done this for two years. Even when you can't explain it, you kind of know what's going on even when sometimes you just can't explain it. So trust your gut. That's right. Trust your gut. Preach, girl. Trust your gut. <laughs> yeah, trust I agree. I, I have found in you know my 18 years that nursing intuition is right like mm-hmm. 99% of the time. I mean, Marissa so just, was like, something's not yeah, right. So always trust yeah. it. Let that guide you. Even if you might feel a little stupid, like, yes. hey, doc, I know we just talked about this and we already decided PCU, but I feel yeah, I feel like we should go ICU. Yeah. How's the blood pressure? It's not ICU bad, but I feel like we should still go to ICU. That advocacy, mm-hmm. it really did save this guy's life. Mm-hmm. So strong work, ladies. How about you, Marissa? I always think back to my earlier days as an ICU nurse with pancreatitis. Um, we'd had a 20-something-year-old patient on night shift. I had got called for a patient that needed ICU level of care for restraints and IV access. So we get the patient upstairs, and he was altered. His belly was distended, and he would talk to you, but he was confused. So he needed an IV fluid for maintenance fluid, apparently. So one of my coworkers started the IV, we get the line, we start some fluids, and right in front of us, the patient up in cardiac arrested, 20-something years old. He had been on med search floor for hours, confused, had pulled out his IV, and had not received any fluid resuscitation. We got ROSC, the patient got several liters of fluid, multiple pressors, went into full-blown kidney failure, got lined up with a dialysis catheter, started CVBH, they made... The, they talked about even opening his abdomen at the bedside because his intra-abdominal pressure was so high. But he ended up getting sent to another facility locally, and he was sent stable, but unfortunately he died a couple hours after arriving at their facility. That patient had pancreatitis. And I feel like he declined as rapidly as he did because he didn't have an IV. If you have a patient on the floor that's sick, guys, an IV is so important. Mm-hmm. I know it's easy to just think, oh, I get to it later. Sometimes you don't have till later. So if you need help, ask your charge nurse, practice your IVs, get a line in the patient as soon as you possibly can. Fluid resuscitation is really important with these patients. And I'm, I'm grateful to have a good outcome to add to my bulletin board, not Yay. necessarily just a bad outcome when it comes to pancreatitis. It, it can be done. 
absolutely. It can be done. Yeah. So the takeaway there is like, yes, you'll see 80 pancreatitis patients that are totally fine. Yeah. And, that and then one. you'll get one that you're like, oh my gosh, they're declining so rapidly. So you make sure that IV is in place, making sure you're ready for the worst case scenario, not just downplaying it because, oh, it's just pancreatitis. Like sometimes just pancreatitis could actually be very life-threatening even for a 20-year-old. So very good point. Well, thank you guys so much for being on my podcast. Thank I you. I really love saving lives with you. I'm glad we got to talk <laughs> about this case together and just highlight some of the life saving that we do at our hospital um, and how amazing nurses like yourselves play such a crucial role in the patient's recovery. So thank you guys. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Sarah. Well, Kathleen and Marissa did a great job breaking down pancreatitis and its treatment. I just wanted to take a minute to summarize some of the main points there are a lot of insights about pancreatitis that I don't think I completely grasped from nursing school that didn't fully sink in until I cared for my first crashing pancreatitis patient. So let's start from the top. Pancreatitis is quite literally inflammation of the pancreas. There are so many causes of pancreatitis, the most common being gallstones and alcoholism, but there are medications that can induce pancreatitis, hypertriglyceridemia, hypercalcemia, cystic fibrosis, um, injury to the pancreas from procedures like an ERCP or surgery or radiation, and in Mr. James's case, pancreatic malignancy. Patients will present with left upper quadrant abdominal pain that may radiate to the back and improve with sitting upright. They are usually tender in the epigastric area and complain of nausea and vomiting, and they may be jaundiced if there's a blockage. The inflammation causes pancreatic enzymes to leak out of the cells and make their way into systemic circulation to be detected as lab values of amylase and lipase. To officially diagnose a patient with pancreatitis, they have to have two or more of the following criteria. So characteristic left upper quadrant abdominal pain, elevation of pancreatic enzymes greater than three times the upper limit of normal, or evidence of pancreatitis on imaging, like CAT scan, MRI, or ultrasound. Mr. James had all three criteria, and his source was the mass on his pancreas. The diagnosis of pancreatitis via lab values can be based on lipase or amylase, but since amylase has such a short half-life, lipase is the preferred diagnostic lab because it usually rises around hour four to eight from the onset of symptoms, and peaks at 24 hours and remains elevated for like a week or more. So the benefit is you can detect it for longer. Like we said, most of the time pancreatitis just needs some basic supportive care and it will resolve within a few days. But sometimes patients can become very sick very fast and require ICU level of care. Acute pancreatitis falls into two categories. About 85 to 90% will have your basic interstitial edematous pancreatitis, and a small 10 to 15% will develop necrotizing pancreatitis, where portions of the pancreas, like the pancreatic tissue, becomes necrotic or dead. Obviously, the type that involves dead tissue carries a higher mortality rate, but both types may require ICU level of care. And only time will tell who gets better and who develops necrotizing pancreatitis. But the treatment all starts off the same. 
Unfortunately, there's no FDA-approved pancreatitis medication. It's all supportive care. So since they are third spacing and losing so much volume that way, it has to be replaced. They'll likely get a big fluid bolus in the ER and continue to get IV fluids once admitted. Now, we used to drown these patients with fluids like 250 to 500 cc's an hour, but now we know that that leads to abdominal compartment syndrome. (laughs) However, they do still need fluids, but the literature is kind of all over the place as to how much fluid that needs to be. Just please keep an eye on these patients for signs and symptoms of fluid overload, like increasing abdominal distension, difficulty breathing, or increased oxygen demand. Oh, and LR is the preferred crystalloid for this patient population. The second aspect of care is treating symptoms. So give antiemetics for nausea and analgesics for pain. Narcotics are usually needed, but try to supplement the narcs with acetaminophen since narcotics can lead to an ileus. And speaking of an ileus, there is the issue of nutrition. Gut health and nutritional intake is important. It promotes healing and decreases the risk of an ileus and surprisingly reduces the risk of pancreatic necrosis. The idea that we have to keep these folks MPO for days, that is old dogma. It's just going to make the patient and the nurse miserable trying to keep them MPO. So what can we feed them? Well, nothing fun. It needs to be a strict low-fat oral diet or low-fat tube feeds. There was a season we were actually starting TPN or total parental nutrition on pancreatitis patients, but eh, that can actually make things worse too. It can increase the risk for infection. So it's not our go-to unless we just have no other options for getting nutrition in the patient. Another treatment is one that we used to give prophylactically to all pancreatitis patients is antibiotics. But now we know that early antibiotics might make things worse, causing super infections. So unless the patient has a confirmed infection like cholangitis, they don't need antibiotics. Pancreatitis really does present like a sepsis picture. So I understand why doctors would feel compelled to start antibiotics. Pancreatitis can have all the classic vital sign changes and lab value elevations that a septic patient would. Like tachycardia, hypotension, and even fever, along with elevated white blood cell count and lactate. If you think about it, the pathophysiology is pretty similar, just without an infective source, usually. Cell injury leads to cytokine release, which activates the inflammatory state, which leads to increased vessel wall permeability and third spacing, causing pancreatic hyperperfusion, leading to ischemia, which causes even more cytokine release, which further excites the whole systemic inflammatory response syndrome, also known as SIRS. The root cause of sepsis is infection leading to the inflammatory cascade of awfulness. But the same cascade gets activated with pancreatitis, so the treatment looks similar, but doesn't necessarily require antibiotics. And As we all know, when septic patients go into shock, it's distributive shock, and they have to go to the ICU for vasopressor support and hemodynamic monitoring, just like some pancreatitis patients do. And then the final thing to discuss is ERCP. ERCP, or endoscopic retrograde 
cholangiopancreatography is not always indicated for pancreatitis unless you need to clear a blockage or go in for a biopsy, which Mr. James needed both of those things. So why did Mr. James get so sick? Pancreatitis really was only a small portion of the problem. He developed a pseudoaneurysm of his GDA or gastroduodenal artery, and that aneurysm, it ruptured. These pseudoaneurysms are a very rare complication of pancreatitis, like less than 2%, but all of the inflammatory enzymes produced from pancreatitis can lead to destruction of the vessel walls and development of a pseudoaneurysm. So now let's talk about why he declined so quickly. Remember Kathleen said that he was awake and pleasant and stable vital signs just a few hours prior when she had seen him and they were even discussing discharge. But then his pain got worse. That was probably the pseudoaneurysm putting pressure on surrounding structures. Then his blood pressure and heart rate started dropping. That's likely when the pseudoaneurysm ruptured. When bleeding is occurring, intravascular blood volume drops and with it, the blood pressure drops too. The usual compensatory response to low blood volume is tachycardia, trying to increase cardiac output. But the phenomenon of bradycardia during hemorrhage is totally a thing. I've seen, I really have seen this a lot with intra-abdominal bleeds that come on suddenly, resulting in a large volume of blood loss really fast. So, While we don't know with absolute certainty, it's speculated that this is due to parasympathetic activation from blood and the peritoneum irritating the vagus nerve. Whatever the reason, it was enough to make us go, hmm, something's not adding up. But then we put the whole picture together, increasing abdominal pain, hypotension, bradycardia, watery looking blood, We knew he was heading in the wrong direction and another liter of fluids was not going to turn him around. Fortunately, we were able to get vasopressors started to constrict his vessels, to buy us some time to get some more blood products on board, and ultimately get him to interventional radiology to embolize the bleed and stop the source of his decline. It's still so amazing to me that someone who was that sick, requiring that many units of blood and that much support was able to walk out of the hospital four days later. I love being a nurse and getting to bear witness to and be a part of these types of wonders every shift. There are two more takeaways that I want to emphasize. The first one, evidence-based practice is always changing. I mean, how many things did I just list in this podcast that we used to do as a standard of care for pancreatitis that is no longer recommended and now known to be harmful or detrimental to the patient's recovery. That is why it's important to stay up to date and don't get stuck in old dogma. I imagine someone in the future will listen to this podcast that recorded in March of 2022 and think, wow, can't believe they used to do it that way. So stay curious, read the literature, keep yourself in touch with current practice because learning's fun and you owe it to yourself and your patients to stay current. And secondly, If something doesn't feel right, don't be afraid to speak up and say something. If you're wrong, well, your pride might get a little hurt. But if you're right, you might just save your patient's life. Well, that's it for today's episode. 
If you like this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email with questions or comments, and it would mean so much if you could take a moment to write a review on iTunes, as this helps more listeners find this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. You've been listening to the Rapid Response RN Podcast. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing, and your patient's care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponsernpodcast at gmail.com or on the Rapid Response RM Podcast Facebook page, as well as the podcast website, rapidresponsern.com.